at the pub. We walked around to the pub the other day. It's hilarious. And um, obviously, they're doing all table service now. You can't go in the pub to get your drink. So these, yeah. these, these two old guys turn up. And uh, the waitress comes out. And one of them says, um, can we set up a tab? And the girl said, uh, no, I don't, I don't think we, you can. You just have to pay for your drinks as you get them. And they said, is Yvonne the uh, landlady in? And he says, yeah. He said, tell her, tell her it's David and Roger. And a tab will be set. So she went, right, okay. She went in. We were sat on the next table. She came back out again and said, she doesn't know who you are. We're David and Roger. And they were really adamant. David and Roger, David and Roger, David and Roger. Just when you said Roger. And but was not and then he had to go in to speak to the woman and i still think he didn't get a tap he just said, well why wouldn't you just just pay for your drinks as you buy them these places have been closed they need cash flow oh but it's just david and roger and you could tell who was roger and who was david by the way roger had a a jumper over his shoulders in a style council style you know tied across his was it roger pastel colors i said to nikki which one do you think's roger and she looked at very possibly him with the moccasins on and the pale, yeah, it was like a pale blue jumper over his shoulders tied in a knot around kind, his neck. The kind, of, the kind of jumper that goes over your shoulders and tied in a knot around the neck are either oh. salmon pink yes, or pastel. Baby blue, blue baby blue. But they, were, they just thought, David and Roger, that's it, that's their passport to success. And she just said, no idea who you are. And even the landlady said, no, <laughs> so they had to keep paying, and they were they weren't happy. Hi, boys, you all right? So, I'm all right. Yeah, sorry about sorry about last week. That's okay. That's all right. Did it work with me? Um, I've not actually listened back to it, but we had some people suggesting that we should basically have a Rory Smith soundboard and just drop in, yeah, sort of Rory Smith isms kind of into, yeah. uh, into the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so why not? I think that's a good idea. That would um, yeah. I mean, and perhaps we could we could then market that to go, you know, for other uses. It's just you know really what I mean? Turning up in people's lives, like pe- no, 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 like petrol stations and stuff. Please, you pump four. <laughs> Post office. <laughs> you are now position eight in the queue. Your PCR you know, test has been returned positive. I actually appreciate it when um, you do get somebody telling you what number you are in a queue when you're when you're on hold waiting, uh, particularly when somebody says at the beginning your wait time will be roughly twenty minutes. And then the next thing, it comes in and says, you are number one in the queue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think, yeah. Oh, God, how long is this phone call going to last? Yeah, how big a problem does the person ahead of me have? <laughs> and how did they know for the automated voice? To say, oh, it's Roger. It's Roger. He it's Roger again. David. Roger. Roger needs a tab. <laughs> oh, hilarious. Sorry, that was a face. It was just a funny story. Oh, Roger and David, Roger. And that would be their... Then they are Roger and David. That's that's Everyone knows Roger and David in Woodford, clearly... The landlady did not know, and presumably she's the one that would know them. But who was Roger? Who was David? Ah, oh, hilarious. So I didn't hear the start of that story, but I think for the edit, we should just leave that bit of Chimp saying it was a funny story about Roger and David in and not with absolutely ah, no context. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What's a funny story? What a funny story. This News. is Set Piece Menu, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth who, according to the Mail Online, lives in a no-go area for white people, despite being almost the whitest person we all know. Rory Smith, who, according to the Mail Online, is an Oxford-educated scientist who prides himself on being both punctual and formally dressed at all times. Yes. And- Andy Hinchcliffe, who, according to the Mail Online, is England's greatest ever seven-cap left-back. He played for clubs in either entirely or predominantly blue. So... I got one well, thing right. <laughs> yes, I'll take that. Uh, talking of which, the food is, Steve... 
It's mango chutney glazed spiced chicken breast with a cumin, bulgur, wheat and roasted carrots. Which uh, is what all people in Didsbury are currently eating. I'm forced to eat by by the fact that it's become a no-go zone. Do you know what, Rory? Just to get in touch with their white roots. You wouldn't recognise the place. In that the cheese hamlet is still there, but it only now sells paneer. Yeah, it's yeah. That is that is one of the most. Initially, when I read it, I thought they'd done it. So my dad, who's a little bit you know doolally, used to always (laughs) ask me on the rare occasions. I I lived in Didsbury for about ten years and. About twice he asked me what it was like in Didsbury. Are you enjoying things in Didsbury? But he always said Dewsbury by mistake. And I wondered initially whether they'd, they'd maybe just got the name of the place wrong. But they meant Didsbury. They had a picture of the church, the Mosque Church. I didn't, because I didn't immediately even recognise the church from that angle, because I don't ever approach it from well, that angle. Would you? The, traffic, so, the traffic's well, exactly. You can't drive along Barlow Moor Road most of the time. Right. There's certainly not a peak times. Maybe I'm that's there. what. Maybe that's what they meant. I mean, to, to an extent, there are certainly around school kick-out time. Getting into Didsbury Village is effectively a no-go zone, but not because of religious reasons, because of the traffic. Chinch is but, just worried about how many Rogers there are in Didsbury, because clearly that is a reflection of how white and middle-class <laughs> an area is. If you wear some sort of pastely coloured. Uh, I just wonder how, how popular the name Roger is. Do you not often look at a baby and think, oh, he'd make a lovely, make a lovely Roger? No, no, no. No, no one makes... No. I don't... Any... No. If only we knew somebody who was having a baby soon... Yeah. This is how it started. ...that call that baby Roger and we could see how, yeah. it's, see how it goes. Yeah, yeah, that's how it started. Depending on how much of the story I put in the edit prior to this point, uh, <laughs> one part that certainly won't make the edit is a conversation about naming a... Uh, a boy child and I suggested that sometimes you know you have a, an idea in mind of what you might call that baby and then he comes out and he looks like a Roger uh, so that was that was how we started the conversation and then it went to uh, a pub visit with Chinch and Roger demanding a tab and Yvonne frankly saying I don't know who you are <laughs> just in case it doesn't make the edit uh, the football is Chinch you know what we're talking about today ah oh, is it Harry Kane well, it is kind of. For the second time in recent yeah. weeks, he is the touchstone for our debate. We will try to have a different debate this time. We are talking about trophies and the various values placed upon them, not only by fans, but by us, the media, and also the players. In an age of super successful super clubs that are almost harvesting trophies year on year, what significance can each of them have? And specifically, for this week anyway, the Henri Delaunay trophy that everyone has forgotten is the one given to the winner of the European Championship. That is to come then. You can get in touch with the podcast. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com is our email address. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube as well. David Tyndall writes this. High, straight, flush, full house and bluff. Listening to a rival football oh. podcast on which Rory is sometimes a guest. I appreciate this doesn't narrow it down very much. Whilst constructing a <laughs> side team from regular contributors, I have heard from them that Rory is referred to as a very good player. Oh, no. All football abilities are. Obviously, Chinch played to the very highest level. But also, no. Self-deprecation, <laughs> gentle teasing that goes on has always given me the impression that the rest of you are complete cloggers of the type that often played at left wing for a Sunday league team as that's the only position where you can do the least damage. I also seem to recall that Rory was a substitute for a team with only 10 men. Uh, no, hang on. This is true. I was a substitute for a team with 11 players. That, that, they didn't play with nine. I wasn't that bad. But a first team on the pitch which started with 10 yeah. We had 11 squad members that day, which is more than several teams will have in the Euros at some point. Um, and, to, uh, and David continues, to avoid that most British response of, I'm all right, I've outlined some categories of ability to place yourselves in. Are you a Sunday League clogger, a Sunday League sober, a Saturday League fancy Dan, a decent but not paid, 
or a lower non-league. Keep up the good work from Dave. Well, now, Dave, the problem with that is that you started with Sonny Lee Clogger and I thought you were going to go down. So I immediately, certainly speaking on behalf of myself, would like to know what's below Sunday League Clogger. We would all willingly embrace Sunday League Clogger. I th- Rory's a bit of a Saturday afternoon fancy Dan. Yeah, I'm... yeah. No, but I'm, I, was ne- I was never good enough to play Saturday football. So for, but... for listeners who, who are not familiar with the intensely important hierarchy of British amateur football, Sunday League is where everyone gets to play. Sat- Saturdays are reserved for people who are quite good. And I was never good enough to play Saturdays. I would, I would, I would probably say Sunday League sober. But having played five aside against Rory, he kind of moves around with, with enough elegance that if somebody gave you a little nudge midway through the game and said, that lad over there with the, with the floppy hair and sort of like the, the, the tallish fella had a trial for Huddersfield Town once. When, when they were in the fourth tier, you know, not when they were... Yeah, yeah, yeah not when they were good, yeah. 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 People are like, oh, yeah, because he... But, you know, nasty injury, never quite worked out for him. Ended up having to write stuff for a living. Mm. I, that's very kind of you, Steve. I think the two things that compete here in my brain about my, my football career, one, I think that if I'd been a different person, I probably could have been okay. I might have been good enough to play on a Saturday, but I'm not, and I refuse to learn anything. And the other is, have you ever played with somebody who plays for like Grey's Athletic or had like, who, who spent like six months on loan at Grey's in 1999, but wasn't good enough? Have you, have you ever played with someone of that sort of level? Yes. Well, because they are, they are so much better than you. And funnily enough, it was, it was somebody, and this was nearly 20 years ago, so not relevant to my physique today. Um, but there was, we played seven aside and there was a guy who I think had been either on loan or had a, a short-term contract at Macclesfield and it was pointless. The other 13 yeah. players on that pitch, it was just pointless. Yeah. Well, do you remember when we played in that, me- did, did both of you play in that media game at Hyde? Steve yeah. definitely did. Yeah, did you play here? No, I, I did the ones at, at City and United that year that they were the same. We, we played against each other, Hugh. Did yes, you're, you're the only, of the three of you, you're the only one I've seen. I say play, it, it was... I, I, oh my god! It was the two-two was was a step too far for me. But I, I, you tried to close me down. I don't know what you were doing. You tried to terrify me, oh, close me down god. with a hurrah, and I just <laughs> lobbed the ball over you and thought, "What are you? Th- I've played against Trevor, Stephen, and Andre Conchelsis. What are you doing, you clown?" But I didn't understand what you were trying to achieve. You, I'd like to say, Stephen Rory. I, I I feel just. Seeing them move, I feel there's a there's a footballer in there, a very small one, but there's a footballer in there. But you, Hugh, I saw you move and thought, just don't set foot on a football pitch. This is not your environment. What? Well, I would say my defence for that moment, which was unforgivable and also hilarious, was that for the entire, I, I imagine, five or six years prior to that, my entire football experience was playing uh, with Steve and Rory at times for a side at the Chalton Leisure Centre. That is the, it's the forge of greatness. It is the forge of greatness until, until you realise that you have forged greatness in a small gym playing four aside, and then you get onto a full Premier League sized pitch. I was swimming out there. I became so agoraphobic. I had no idea what oh, to do. So I it was ran the space for about three meters and got balance. knackered. So yeah, I had no idea. I thought I was closing you down from the other end of the pitch. <laughs> The, the thing about um, the thing about those Chalton games, which I think you know at some point will will warrant a book or maybe like a Netflix documentary. Chalton Leisure Centre slash the Widowmaker, uh, <laughs> of all of the injuries that we suffered. We, you're, the, it was the 
you'll notice, by the way, that Charlton Leisure Centre shut down after we yes. stopped playing because they realised they couldn't they couldn't top that golden age. But it was a mix of characters. <laughs> so you had so Steve and Hugh were both all right. They're both fine. They're then they're, they're Steve. I can imagine being a, a kind of quite reliable Sunday lead right back. Is that yeah. about right? I'll yeah. take it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll take it. Hugh, I can imagine being the person who is Steve is selected ahead of. <laughs> he is Bobby Boucher. Who, who drives, me, who drives me to the game. I don't overexert myself. The, um, but there was also Will Perry, now 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 on TV, um, very handsome, incredibly fit, quite, quite a good player, but much more kind of brawn than brain, both in football and life. There was Conor McNamara, superstar commentator at the BBC, um, who would never do anything that wasn't a back heel. I mean, I've, ne- I've never seen a player as elaborate as Connor, ever. And, and, and Rory Smith, we should say at this point, Saturday afternoon or Sunday, Sunday morning sober, whatever it may well be, is very much a Connor McNamara light. If, look, if there's, a, if there's a Rabona on, I'll do it. That's not, <laughs> no, that's not in dispute. But the, um, in fact, I saw, I saw an old mate of mine uh, having a go at me on Twitter the other day. Uh, who's a Man United fan, and he was accusing me of being a glory hunter or something. I'd obviously written something that, that he disagreed with, and he said to one of his one of his co-conspirators, he said, "I used to play five aside with Rory. This was about this would be about fifteen years ago. I used to play five aside with Rory Smith, lights a Rabona." And I thought, "Yep, yeah, that's the tombstone. Not a problem." <laughs> <laughs> but, well, who, who Rory hasn't mentioned yet, and I'm, I'm sure you're going to come on to it. Come is, on, it's both Stuart Gardner. Um, the uh, Manchester United Television League commentator, who was singularly responsible for a pool of players of about 20 going down to about nine by <laughs> summarily smashing them into the side walls <laughs> at every occasion to the extent that Simon Stone, now BBC, formerly a press association, refused to play anymore after he essentially broke no. Simon's arm by doing that. The one that I remember most is London Marathon hero, oh, yes. Dave Wyatt. And I, I, I'd say I think about this about once every three days because I have never met anybody as competitive as Steve's brother. He is the most competitive person. He is the sort of person who would bollock you for not marking in a three-a-side game. <laughs> and he, he, oh, this is, uh, Dave's, Dave's a lovely man, as proved by his London Marathon heroics. But my favourite memory of that game was, that, was Dave insisting that you had to man-mark in three-a-side. Now, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I would say that if you man-mark in three aside, all it takes is one successful one-two, and your whole defensive scheme has gone out the window. Yeah. But he, Dave, is, is Dave like that in, in other areas of his life? Because I just remember him basically screaming at me. He's super competitive for like 26 miles. It's just the other 200 yards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that, unfortunately, is a burn that will singe him for the rest of his life. Uh, well, Dave, Dave Tyndall uh, asked the question. Um, I don't know if he necessarily expected all of that, but still, thank you to Dave. Um, uh, on other matters, the, the, uh, now that the 26-man squads are all set for the Euros, and probably because he heard from a different Robbie on a recent show and got jealous, here's Robbie Wells, not walls nor harms, in response to our squad construction episode from a few weeks back. Hi, Kyle, Reese, Trent and Kieran. No room for Aaron in my doppelganger greeting quartet squad and for Southgate neither, Robbie. I will try to make it brief. Rory began the discussion about squad construction by saying that this Euros will not be one for tactical mastery. You won't see much high pressing, he said. I tend to agree. I think the various nations are potentially going to be knackered from a season which are being played, crucially, without much of or any winter break. Therefore... Is it not sensible to suggest that if a manager cannot construct the squad of best quality, which England obviously can't, France, Belgium, Portugal all have better quality, then why not pick the fittest 26-man squad? Get a shortlist of 40 or 50, 
of the best England has to offer and make them try out in fitness tests to see who is most able to implement a high-pressing masterclass. There's no concerns of travelling, high altitude or temperatures. Just run the other countries off the park. My case in point is Leeds. Their form in the last 10 games is the best of anyone in the league because they are superbly well-drilled and fitter than anyone. Gareth, you know it makes sense. P.S. I realise there's more to pressing than just running, but they're all top-level intelligent. Oh, wait. Ciao, ciao from Robbie Wells. Not walls, nor harms. I do, th- I do think there's a really serious point in that that's, that is really interesting, which is I don't know why a national team manager hasn't yet tried essentially constructing a team that that is is designed to carry out a specific tactical plan rather than thinking these are these are kind of the raw materials that I've got these are roughly the best players I've got these are maybe the 40 or 50 best players I've got I've got to pick 25 26 of them why not think the way I want to play the best way to play is this so I will choose the 20 players who are best able to carry that out regardless of what level they're at not not like lead to not Sunday league clogger but you know Premier League Championship whatever if you say right we want to play a really a really like insane high press Germany's probably quite a good example we want to play a really insane high press and we can we can fit you know Joshua Kimmich and we can fit Tony Kroos into that but the others are all going to be replaced by people playing for Munch and Gladbach because they play, or Leverkusen, they play these, these mad presses. We'll do that because we think that will work at international level, which it probably would. I'm not quite sure why no... no. It, it, there's obviously some sort of convention that says you have to pick... that The best players you have have to be in the team rather than actually the best way of winning is to come up with a system that definitely works and finding the players that suit that. But how, how much do you think media influences national coaching in terms of their... Team? Yes, that's a, that's a great idea. But if Yogi Love said, I'm going to do that, how do you, he couldn't do that. He couldn't do that, could he? Because of the, the grief and the press and how they would react to that. The Frankfurter Allgemeiner saying, nicht, Yogi, nicht. Yeah. Look at the reaction to his decision to effectively retire some of yeah. Germany's most decorated senior players, the likes of, of Thomas Muller. They're now back in Mats Hummels. Jürgen Bergten was another one, but they were sort of cut, cut, aside for for a while i mean that that proved to be incredibly unpopular and ultimately a bad decision but if you want an even more ludicrous example the the british media has genuinely spent the last week discussing whether ben white or james ward prowse should be in the inland squad without once mentioning the correct answer which is who cares it doesn't make any difference Mm. the you know it's it's there is this there is a need and i'm certain it's not just an english thing but there is a need to create not quite crisis but talking points so yeah if you if 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 Lerv had said, I'm not going to take Leroy Sane or, or Serge Gnabry, I'm going to take this lad from Gladbach and these two from Leverkusen, I think they can press, then the German press would have done nuts. And I think that mm. to an extent that the job of an international manager is to manage that that sense of that sort of, that mounting furore at all times. So yeah, that's probably why it is. And that's that's a real shame. If, if, you, if at the Euros you had a 26-man squad made up of competitive Wyaths, how well, far would that that could that win it? Could well, that take it, them all away? No, the thing is, if you had if you had really competitive wires, they'd probably get to the final into like the eighty ninth minute and then yeah. just fall short. Ah! <laughs> oh. <laughs> and also, how would how would one wire respond to the other wire telling them to? Uh, that's the whole thing. From, the dynamic. From, the dynamic. It would, would go, no. From memory, very badly. <laughs> yes. But basically, we'd be the Netherlands. <laughs> On the pitch in front of everybody else. Um, Art Megalian uh, is next. To Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln and TR, which I'm assuming is Theodore Roosevelt and not the first two letters of Trump. 
Uh, two thoughts on SPM 233. He says, first, it must be said that you guys never fail to outperform what you set out to accomplish each week. In this case, SPM 233 did indeed prove that two things can be true at once. You can be informative and entertaining at the same time in the same podcast. So his opening to the email actually uh, forms one of two points that he makes in the entire body of the email, which is excellent work, Art. Thank you. Second, Rory Smith's ethereal addition to the podcast, while quite bizarre, reminded me of my own contributions to various podcasts in the past. Sometimes during a podcast, though never SPM, I might fall asleep. But in my REM state, I'd still be hearing the conversation. In my eagerness to interact, I'd pose a question or offer an opinion and invariably be, be ignored. Very frustrating. At least a few of Rory's interjections were met with some sort of appropriate response. That's Art McGalian, who's high up on the power rankings of names in Minneapolis. I, yeah, well, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to know that, that it was a suitably kind of odd interjection. That, that was my plan. I, I am very sorry for not, not making it last week. It was, that, there was a confluence of factors that prevented me doing so. And finally, from Robert Troyes, or it kind of looks like it should be Troyes, but um, Robert, uh, I'm reading it as written. Dear SPM legends, I have only recently discovered the SPM podcast, and I'm loving the banter. Rule number one for new listeners, don't call it banter. A random scroll of episodes led me to listening to podcast 101, which was called What If? And after hearing the bit about fantastic team names, I did a search, as was suggested during the pod, of African teams and found the best list of names I have ever seen. And this is just from what Google initially brings up on the first screen, eight options, after loading. I didn't even have to click through. Please read and enjoy. So to prevent you from doing the very simple task of just Googling, here are those names courtesy of uh, a website called thesouthafrican.com. They are from Ghana, Cape Coast Ibusua Dwarfs, mm -hmm. the Botswana Meat Commission. <laughs> that is amazing. That's oh, really? God. Oh, God. And I feel like we're building up here as well. I'll tell you what we should do here, Hugh. At the end of the list, you three have got to choose which of those teams your footballing ability would suit best. <laughs> oh, it's a cyclical oh, and perfect. Uh, next, and I've already chosen, because this is mine. From Swaziland, 11 men in flight. <laughs> Uh, so I'm in that one. Um, <laughs> B Forward Wanderers from Malawi. Leones Vegetarianos. Vegetarian. <laughs> from Equatorial Guinea. Are all the lions in, in Equatorial Guinea vegetarian? That's I would say almost certainly not. <laughs> that might be a cultural thing. Um, uh, also from Swaziland, Vovovo, vo, vo, which from what I understand have some sort of derby with the French team, Vavavoom. Um <laughs> That's, that's from me, not from Robert. Uh, Kampala Capital City Authority in Uganda is an attractively titled team name. And finally, from Zimbabwe, the Chicken Inn. Oh, nice. <laughs> a local establishment which has a football team, I'd imagine, um, and one where Roger has a tab. So if you could uh, choose your favourite name and which one <laughs> reflects best your contributions. One to of you's it. got to be the, the meat oh, one. I'm definitely relocating to Botswana. I'm claiming it before Rory can even... <laughs> Actually, if it was called Botswana Meat Commission with absolutely no veg, salad or condiments, mm -hmm. that would be <laughs> Botswana Meat Commission, no lubrication. The Hang on, what was the one before Chicken Inn? Uh, Kampala Capital City Authority in Uganda. And what was the one before that? Uh, Vovovo -vo -vo in Swaziland. And before that? <laughs> be Forward Wanderers. Maybe that one. Yeah, because that's, that's uh, your type of game, isn't it? So I don't like thinking, no, I... no defensive discipline. I do not want to defend. That's what Dave Wyeth correctly identified as yeah. he screamed in Rory my face. Rory likes getting on the front foot, so yeah. that's definitely the right team for you. Uh, Chinch, have you picked one for you? Uh, is there... A, is there um, Sheffield um, Wednesday. Yeah, I'll just play for... That's a team. In Botswana, they're laughing. Sheffield Wednesday. What a ludicrous <laughs> name for a football club. Who named a team after a game of the week? <laughs> 
Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. <coughs> the best, the very best of European football are back this summer for the Euros. And you can avoid a Marouane Fellaini bush in your midfield with Manscaped. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no. Who are proud sponsors of Set Piece Menu. Be a proper lad this tournament and shave your bits with the best and global leaders in below-the-waist grooming, Manscaped. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code SPM at manscaped.com. I'm going to assume that pretty much everybody involved in the Euros will have a world-class grooming game to the extent that they might even have a Manscaped product in those little uh, wash bags that they yeah. take to games because that's the only, the only luggage they ever have at games. Did, did you have a wash bag? Did you yes. ever take a Louis Vuitton wash bag into? Uh, into uh, I think it was Louis Vuitton. I don't think I was that. Yeah, I, I wasn't that type of player. What was it? There were many. There were bag? many. I think it was probably just like an M and S one or something like that. You know, very understated but full of quality products. That did what? Uh, deodorized and scented me post match. Well, Manscaped is dedicated to helping you level up your full body grooming game, so you too can enjoy the games clean and properly cared for. They have forever changed the grooming game with their Performance Package 3.0. Head to toe. This is the ultimate male hygiene bundle. The Performance Package 3.0 comes with the Lawnmower 3.0, the Weed Whacker, and formulations to round out your grooming routine. That's what you should have said was in your little bag, Chinch. Bringing your boys back to life and in the game for all 90 minutes. Some of these references feel a little shoehorned. You've probably heard of the Lawnmower 3.0, aka the best ball trimmer ever created. This is the best trimmer on the market for those of you in need of a shave. The third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to advanced skin safe, trademark, technology pioneered by Manscaped, also trademark. There's even an LED light so you can see everything you're doing down there. Also included is the Weed Whacker ear and nose hair trimmer, which is waterproof and uses a 9,000 RPM motor power, 360 degree rotary joint blade system <gasps> look as clean and well groomed head to toe as one of the all-time greats and david beckham get 20 percent off and free shipping with the code spm at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off with free shipping at manscaped.com use the code spm hit the target this euros with manscaped oh by the way cody schultz has a relevant email which i will insert here benedict allen daniel and rory I just placed my order for the Lawnmower 3.0 from Manscaped and wanted to make sure I used my favourite podcast promo code to support you. So I googled Setpiece Menu Manscaped code and the first link was to your YouTube video of Mr. Snookerballs. And so I clicked the link. Grave mistake. I had never seen any video or images of any of you except Rory from his Twitter and Friday newsletter. So I had the following images in my head for each of you. I imagined Hugh as a Benedict Cumberbatch-like figure. <laughs> as a young Alan Rickman, and Andy as a Daniel Craig doppelganger. But now the illusion has been shattered. All for the better, though. Now I can actually put your real faces to your voices. Cheers, and thanks for the great deal on my lawnmower 3.0. Can't wait to use it, he says, in words that he actually wrote and I didn't have to insert. That's Cody Schultz, who, remember, is from Warner Robins, Georgia. The, to be fair, there is a little bit of Daniel Craig about Chinch. I, I think I'm more Timothy Dalton, aren't I, really, if we're going no. down the James Bond... Steve, Daniel Craig! Steve is slightly Dalton-esque. But you're, you, you, you look a bit like Daniel Craig after an accident. <laughs> Where his face hits a wall or, or something no. like that. What? If, if, if Daniel Craig's Madame Two Swords figure got a little bit in a microwave. To the fire, yeah. <laughs> yeah, face, face has been on fire and put out with a frying pan, that type of thing. Yeah, I get you, I get you. 
<laughs> Timothy Dawn, by the way, a Manchester City fan, Chinch. Did you know that? Is that right? Uh, yeah, we well, should see me coming out the Total Fitness swimming pool with my budget, budgie <laughs> smugglers on. I do look Craig-esque. More Wendy. No, not Wendy Craig. No, no, no. <laughs> just, yeah, just a little bit shorter. Who's Wendy yeah, Craig? Wendy Craig. Who's Wendy Craig? Who's Wendy Craig? <gasps> oh, he's slightly Who is Wendy Craig? Oh, oh I see. Uh, now hear the sounds. You of never watched Butterflies? Oh, one of the great British sitcoms of the 70s and 80s, How I presume. How old are you? And Jeffrey Palmer. Uh, I love Jeffrey Palmer. Oh, well, I love Jeffrey Palmer. Palmer. Oh, hang on, hang on. Wendy Craig has been in Death in Paradise and therefore is one of the finest actresses of our time. Oh. <laughs> there we go. So Rory does know who she is. Uh, yes, Timothy Dalton is a Manchester City fan and um, I have met him. Have you? I have interviewed him. Amazing. Yes, it's, I'm quite proud of that. Which I have met no Beginning bonds. at the end of that story. You no, I've no never bonds. met Bond. No. What was he like? He was very, very nice. Was he? And very normal. But yet, um, if you've watched Hot Fuzz, you'll appreciate that I felt, felt that he was slightly threatening and sinister, even in being incredibly charming. As a Manchester City fan, at any point did he say, well, the media have got it all in for us, haven't they? They're all biased against us. <laughs> but he, he has family in this neck of the woods, which means that essentially he comes you to... You seem eat. to know a lot about Timothy. You really Johnson. do, yeah. This is what this is... happens when you interview somebody. Um, it's called... Do you find out where they well, live? Is he related to John Dalton? As in the road? As in the road, yeah. I have no idea, but what I do know is that he comes to every Boxing Day game, if it's at home, uh, yeah. to, to visit much... his family at Christmas. So if you're a Manchester City fan or you happen to go to the Etihad at Boxing Day, keep a lookout, because you might see Timothy Dalton. This was a real in-depth interview. Have you got his postcode? <laughs> <laughs> in, un in unrelated news, Timothy Dalton is uh, taking out an injunction against... <laughs> Very nice man. Uh, now, um, that was way too long. Sorry, everybody. Uh, there are those in the game who are perennially linked with the failure to win anything, despite either personal achievements or their achievement of having a good personality. People, for example, like Timothy Dalton. Gary Lineker is known to point out on a BBC broadcast of an FA Cup match that ubiquitous pundit in chief Alan Shearer never won that particular competition. The Shearer rejoinder to which is a reminder that Lineker never won the league, any league, not even with Grampus 8. The point is that to either winning the trophy they didn't wouldn't have just prevented a lifetime of televisual ribbing, it would have had greater value, apart from if it was with Grampus 8. We also spoke recently in our episode about Player Pathways about the relative value of trophies to Harry Kane and Jack Grealish, both at a club currently either unlikely to win or famously incapable of winning anything. Silverware might be currently elusive for them, and while a potential move to Manchester City for one or both might improve the chances of winning something, will that mean more than if they achieve the honour with the club for whom they currently play? one that has greater geographical and emotional significance to them. And talking of Manchester City, who hoovered up another two trophies this past season, what value to their players of each one and to our consideration of their achievements too? Which brings us to the Euros, because the rarity of international football helps to add to the meaning, and Harry Kane would tell you genuinely that it matters to him, more of that in a moment, with Rory. But would you care if you were winning league after league in Germany or France or Italy and then won an international competition? Ole Gunnar Solskjaer once said trophies are for egos. Well, today we're asking, can a player's legacy be about anything more than that? Well, so the, the thing that makes me, that made me suggest this subject is that is the discussion over Kane and the idea that he'd somehow be disappointed if he retired with no major trophies, maybe, you know, maybe a Carabao every now and again, a couple of Carabaos in his pocket, but no Premier League, no, no FA Cup, no Champions League. But with a statue of him outside the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium as the all-time leading goal scorer for Spurs and potentially 
in the Premier League. He 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 is within ninety eight, I think, of Shearer's record. And it was suggested that like he might be disappointed with that. And I was a bit like, well, why? Why on earth would he be? Why why on earth would winning the FA Cup or leader or going to Manchester City and winning, you know, being part of a kind of a team that wins the Premier League a couple of times because it's got much better players than everybody else. Why Why is that automatically better than kind of hitting a unique mark? This is a bit over, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but there can only be one leading goal scorer in Premier League history. And it's currently Alan, Alan Shearer, which is, you know, probably his greatest claim to fame. People probably know Shearer for, for that more than the fact that he won the league with Blackburn. There are loads of Premier League champions. Loads of players have won the Premier League. Hundreds of players have won the Premier League. Only one player can be all-time leading scorer for a club or, or for a league in general. And I, I, I don't. I know it's a team sport and that's what matters, blah, blah, blah. But I do think we kind of confuse how much trophies mean and diminish how much individual achievements mean to players. And it's partly, I think, and then the, the flip side is that over the last... 10, 15 years, and I think it's, it's one of the, the side effects of the Messi-Ronaldo phenomenon, is we've become obsessed with players winning trophies in ridiculous quantities. So da- I think Danny Alves and Maxwell are the two most decorated players in history. Maxwell retired with 36 trophies. Danny Alves, I think, now keeps winning sort of Sao Paulo State Championship, so he's on about 41. And there's this kind of idea that, that if you aren't winning literally dozens of trophies, you are in some way a failure. But that's a load of nonsense. That never used to be the case. And in, in, in a sense, it would be much better, well, not even in a sense, in many ways, it'd be a lot better if it wasn't the case. That, you know, if, if you were doing well to retire with half a dozen trophies, that would, be, that would be extraordinary. Whereas now, if you haven't got 24, you're considered a bit of a failure. And I think that that, that A, is, is too high a bar, and B, diminishes the actual individual importance of each trophy. Is it, is it different for strikers, you feel? Because you look at goalkeepers, defenders, midfielders, winning trophies maybe defines how good or bad they were during their careers. But for strikers, yes, you might win trophies, but at the end of your careers, is the natural question, where do you rank in terms of, of goals around in international football, in Premier League football? Is it, is it different for strikers these days? That's the way they can defy, ultimately define themselves, is by breaking those individual... Is that why Kane is maybe looking at breaking Premier League records, breaking the England goal-scoring record, rather than saying, I want 20 trophies to define me? Those records will define me because I'm being put up against Sergio Aguero and, uh, and Alan Shearer. Is it, is it different for strikers, or is it, is it in the modern game it's different for strikers? That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that. that they are the... That strikers are probably the only ones who've got who've got an individual record, like a meaningful individual record. They can That's go the for first it. thing you say when you're looking at, at players on a pitch. Strike, how many? Go- and I say, well, it's not always about the goals that they score; it's what they can do for the team as well. But it is ultimately what they're judged by is is goals and games, isn't it? And their ratio. Yeah. So again, it, it is different for strikers rather than any other player. And and that's the Messi and the Ronaldo thing as well, which has industrialised that part of it. It's not just yeah. the trophies; it's the amount of goals that they score and this kind of um, failure to ever compare to that, and therefore being a failure completely. And so if you're not getting that, that gargantuan level of scoring records to be able to compete with what we are now saying is the best, then do you have a sense, well, I'm not going to bother, so I might therefore redirect my desires so elsewhere. And the other so thing is that you make a decision, surely, all, all about the value of a trophy when the trophy happens. You don't necessarily know that you're going to be the winner of that in the future or be the highest goal scorer in Premier League history in the future. So surely you would... Uh, if you're a player right now, if you're Harry Kane, 27, 28, 
you make a decision based on what that means to you right now because the yeah. amount of people that we've spoken to during their careers who said I'll think about that kind of stuff at the end of my career well some things they're thinking about during their career and that's short term and that might be the reason why trophies have value to them at that moment but for a striker in the modern game has Harry Kane got it right rather than the amount of trophies that he wins to try and break all these records that does that you can see why he's maybe th if he is thinking along those lines which Rory I think you've, you've actually spoken to is he thinking along those lines if not and it doesn't necessarily mean it's all about the ego and I want to stand again if you break those records you're going to stand out but again does that make sense if he thinks like that well, it's, it's, to me, football is all about memory, basically. Football is about collective memory to a large extent and, and kind of the stories that are passed down from parents to their children. And that's what, that's what a club is. It's the, the sort of combined, coalesced law around previous victories. And trophies are basically a way of saying, this is, this is a thing to a player. I, I imagine this is a thing I remember. This is, this is my moment that I have ascribed my name into history by winning this. But then so are records. And I think even, even being all-time Premier League top scorer is, is obviously a massive thing. But even being Spurs' all-time top scorer, which I think is currently Jimmy Greaves, mm -hmm. um, is, that's huge. That's massive. Like you, will be, you will, I guarantee this, be remembered for far longer. And you'll be sort of seen as a greater, as a figure of like greater relevance if you're your club's all-time top scorer. This is, oh, and you're still talking about Jimmy Greaves. So again, his record is exactly. the test of time. Yeah, and people aren't saying, it, oh, it doesn't matter because it's a different era. The, one of the best examples is, is Jack Rowley, who was, whose brother was Arthur, who was the all-time football league leading scorer, and I think still might be. But Jack Rowley was one of the players that Wayne Rooney overtook on his way to becoming Man United's leading scorer. No one asked what Jack Rowley had won. No one cared what Jack Rowley had won. It didn't matter. The fact that he scored 211 goals for Manchester United, whatever it was, that's what mattered. Mm -hmm. And I, I think we, in that sort of determination to focus on on the trophies that you've won and the collective rewards, we, we, we kind of underplay how much individual records really do matter. So, yeah, I spoke to Kane a few weeks ago. We'll run the piece at some point towards the end of this week, I think, before England's first game. And, and Kane's thing was, first of all, was that winning something with England was much, is much more important to him than winning anything at club level. That's what he wants to do. And I think there are a lot of players who are outside of those dozen clubs who regularly win trophies who probably see that as international football is their chance to really kind of make a I tell you Roy that, a that is a huge change in thinking for players because I, when I was around the England not for a long time you, you tended to think that their clubs success with their clubs was all important and they probably knew they oh. wouldn't be successful with it but they maybe didn't have the drive to as, as Kane has got to win something that being the most important thing to win something for England well Chinch I wonder if this feeds into into the thing we talked about before about whether you could should select a team that's not just the best players, but I wonder if, if you've got a team of players who hadn't won a load of stuff at club level, whether you might have an advantage at international level, because I think if you're at Manchester United, at Manchester City, maybe at Liverpool, maybe Chelsea, you're, you're probably thinking, well, what matters is what I do at club level. Then if you're playing for Aston Villa, you probably are recognising that your, your big, biggest chance of winning a major trophy is, is with your national team. Mm. And I, I suspect that's true across Europe. I think there'll be players that, you know, Carlos Soler has been, I think, has been called up for the Spain squad. He's winning nothing with Valencia, but he, he could win Euro 2020 in 2021 with Spain. And that's probably more important to him than, than the idea of winning the league. He's not going to win the league because he doesn't play for one of the three clubs who are allowed to win the league in Spain. So that think, mindset, Rory, that you yeah. just described is reflected by the club names you see on flags around stadiums. Yes. Games. Because they are not the the club names of successful, multiple trophy winning clubs. They are. No, it's all Tottenham and Arsenal. Yeah. <laughs> I, 
always, I, I do always tend to know there's always a Chester and always a Huddersfield. Or is that at England cricket games when they tour with the Barmy Army as well? But you're right, Steve, that, that, that you, if you're a football fan, you can understand that, can't you? Because you, you, you support a club that isn't going to win anything, but you are al- at least allowed to channel some sort of supporting into the national team, which does have more of a chance of winning something than, than a Chester or a Huddersfield. I just wonder, a couple of points that Rory's made, and I don't disagree with them at all. In fact, I, I agree, but I'm going to offer the counterpoints in that I wonder whether what you've described, Rory, in terms of us now living in an era where there are players who have accumulated huge numbers of trophies, dozens of, has potentially changed ever so slightly that perception of how significant, unique achievements might be. Because even if you use the Kane-Shearer comparison, Shearer won the Premier League before going on to be a legend in his hometown club. So he effectively managed both. And I think I've made this point before. He won the Premier League at a point before we became familiar with the idea of a team in the modern era being crowned champions of England multiple times in, in quick succession. And that whilst... That having a statue outside a stadium is, for me, would be the ultimate accolade. That the goalposts have been moved ever so slightly because there is now the ability to have both mm. by making the right choice, by picking the right team, by perhaps getting fortunate with when a major club comes in for you and having a longevity, longevity of career, you can have the multiple trophies and the unique accolade say for example if Harry Kane were to join Manchester City this summer well he would still have a very very strong chance of going on to be the all-time Premier League leading goal scorer but he'd probably end up with three or four Premier League titles to go with it. Steve if you were to have a statue outside Charlton Leisure Centre what pose do you think that statue should strike? It would be me being screamed, at, being, being screamed at by his brother. <laughs> being screamed at by my brother whilst I was down nursing the ankle injury that he had just given me. <laughs> but the, the, the other thing about a, a, a statue, it's difficult to guarantee a statue because there are plenty of club legends that have fallen out with owners who take over after they are retired. You, you, you need that kind of synergy to be able to guarantee a statue. So that it, it's, it's, you don't, when you're playing, think about the possibility or if, if you do there's no way that it will follow through that you actually get that statue but if you are again Harry Kane and you go to Manchester City and you win three or four Premier League titles you're still regarded as a, as, as a favourite son of Spurs but because you have the international records to potentially give you that statue or give you that place in history that your club either because you wanted trophies against the team that you grew up with or you weren't winning any with the team you were growing up with that that's a kind of lucky position for Harry Kane to be in and perhaps Rory that's why he was saying to you that I can focus on these kind of things there aren't many who can well I think first we may be focusing a bit too much on on getting a statue as being the bar we may be guilty of, of... I do believe that you brought it up <laughs> when did this I know statues have been around for quite a long but when did this thing about having statues talking about Man City David <laughs> Silver and Vincent Cumberland the, the statue is now the thing isn't it if you okay you won loads of trophies but you maybe didn't break records but statue it is it seems to be coming stick a statue up we'll stick a statue up we may be setting slightly too high a bar with with you've got to have a statue that's not the only way you can you can have success and also with football's hit rate on statuary you've got to got to question whether maybe whether maybe you'd want a statue given that football statues are all dreadful isn't you're not getting Michelangelo's David are you do you know what I mean (laughs) 
<laughs> Do you remember that Cristiano Ronaldo one? Did you remember that one? Who was that of? That was of it was Cristiano Ronaldo after his waxwork had melted. <laughs> it was Chinch's Daniel Craig. They repurposed it. But I do, I do, I do. I, yeah, I take your point that that maybe the the, the difference now is that the very best players can, can just choose. They can say. I want to be Premier League leading. And look, if Harry Kane signs for Manchester City, he will probably end up as Premier League leading goalscorer and multiple Premier League champions. So why would you not? But I do. But if he think... signs for City, is he going for the goal scoring record or the trophy haul? The trophy haul, first and foremost, with yeah. the knowledge that the goal scoring record will probably follow anyway. But he's making that decision because he has to make a decision now. He is not 38 years old and replotting with hindsight what would have been the best move for his career, which we're able to do because we're not him. We can think about yeah, the yeah, multiple yeah. paths that he could potentially follow. But if you're that player, if you're any player and you're making that decision right now, you make it right now. And so the question that we're asking today is, when you make that decision right now, are you putting a different value on the trophies that you have either won or, in Harry Kane's case, you might eventually win? Another, another example, Jeannie Wijnaldum is joining PSG. He's leaving Liverpool, where he won the Premier League title and the Champions League. And he is going to PSG, where he will be, in the very phrase that you used earlier, winning league untitles, the Uber Eats league untitles, you know, like... But Ginny yeah, Wijnaldum's always Eats dreamed of delivery. <laughs> Ginny Wijnaldum's always dreamed of winning the Uber Eats. He grew, grew up yeah, thinking he grew up, and thinking, want yeah. an Uber Eats from his home in Holland. But the, but he he is he is moving why? Because he is moving to get his contract has come to the end of Liverpool, so he's moving for a bigger contract. He's getting more money and also the guarantee of trophies. He might have moved to Barcelona, where, funnily enough, he wouldn't have got necessarily that much more money and wouldn't have been able to guarantee trophies. But the move for him would have been more romantic because of the association that he Dutch players. Is have. he moving for the trophies? I know. No, no, this is my point. He is moving yeah. to guarantee that he will win trophies. But what really? Do a PSG? He'll win the. He'll win. He the will, of course, he will. But do you think he's thinking? I'm going to go there and win five no, no, no. league untitles. Can we? This hang on. That's the most important feature. Can we please point. give it its its proper title? Uber five Eats. Uber Eats league Uber untitles. No, he's not. Whoa, 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 whoa! Sorry, sorry to be the expert. It's the Liga Uber Eats. Well, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Do things differently. That's ridiculous. Um, but the, my whole point is, is that he is moving that will guarantee him trophies. But what value does he put on those trophies? And I would suggest not very much. Yeah. And so there are other players doing or going through this process, going through the same decision-making process and thinking about what's best for them. And it's not necessarily to, to win trophies that they assign value to. So I think with, with Wijnaldum, he is going primarily because it's his last big payday. And PSG have offered him the biggest payday. That is the main motivation and fair play to him. He's 30, might as well. And I think the other thing that he was probably looking for in a club was a team that gives him a reasonable chance of winning the Champions League, which PSG does. PSG are one of the eight teams that can probably win. You know, will one of those eight teams will win the Champions League every year in the duration of Genie Wijnaldum's contract in Paris. And so that is, if you play in the numbers, I think the winning the lead are Uber Eats is of no, or even the Coupe de France Deliveroo, is of no, is of no, is of no relevance to him whatsoever. The he he knows he will win it, but I don't think the players who go to to PSG are particularly bothered about winning winning Liga. I think, and I don't want to kind of do Maxwell down for all of his eight Liga titles, but I don't think they give any huge weight to that. You sign for PSG partly for the money and partly because it gives you a shot in the Champions League, which again. Is is maybe 
that's maybe evidence of a, of a fairly significant shift in football, that at that level, players are moving, not necessarily because they want to win domestic titles, which I think in certainly in Germany, Italy and France, to an extent in Spain, and probably not at all in England, England's probably the exception, I don't think players are thinking, I want to win the domestic title. I have to go there to win the domestic title. I think they're they're thinking, I want to win the Champions League. Mm -hmm. As a corollary of that, I will get a load of domestic titles. But what I want to do is be in a position to win the Champions League. So I'm signing for this club because they give me a chance to win the Champions League. So if Kane went to PSG, it wouldn't be to win leader. It would be to because PSG give him a a realistic shot of winning the Champions League. And I think that... Is, is maybe the, the, the flip side of the industrialization of trophy winning, this kind of trophy harvesting, is that increasingly it's only really two trophies that actually matter to anybody at club level, plus two at international level. We should also make reference to the industrialization of a neighbour's back garden, which is currently taking place um, in Ilkley. Uh, and, near- and has been happening <laughs> since 2017. Uh, so if you're hearing the drilling, that's where it's coming from. So a portion blame, not to Rory, but to a very keen gardener. Stephen. I wonder whether, just to take the cynical view, whilst I do accept Rory's description of a player's ultimate ambitions, that the the consequence, the happy consequence of stat padding with those relatively easy to anticipate titles that comes with joining a team like PSG is not a bad fallback when you're making your decisions. It's an, it's a nice to have, isn't it? That you can, in in Ronaldo's case, he is in a situation where two clubs are chasing him. One is willing to pay him more money, even if the other aspirationally would probably be his preferred option in terms of heritage and history and reputation. But that, as Rory suggests, he can make that decision, thinking. I stand a really good chance of winning another Champions League if I join this club. And if that doesn't happen, I'm probably going to win four titles. And that makes my Wikipedia page look even better. But the other thing that maybe that's a shift as well, you know, because I think I've had a theory for a while that we've kind of misunderstood Real Madrid and Barcelona a little bit in in terms of the, the position they occupy in players' minds, which is I think playing for Barcelona or Real Madrid to a lot of players is better than winning a league. So if if you presented a player of whatever nationality with a chance to win Liga or Serie A or the Bundesliga or play for Real Madrid, I think quite a lot would be like, well, I want to play for Real Madrid. Mm. That's, the shirt, the shirt itself yeah. is, yeah. is a trophy almost. Yeah, exactly. It's proof of your individual primacy, your, your excellence, the fact that you have succeeded in your football career if you play for Real Madrid. And I think that's worth more than a trophy. But it's interesting now that because of the balance of of money, the fact that PSG and, and Man City, Man United, Chelsea as well, because they can offer so much more money than Real Madrid and Barcelona, and that desire, that the fact that I think winning, the, certainly to European players, I think winning the Champions League outweighs absolutely everything else. That is the ultimate thing on continental Europe, is to win the Champions League. Winning Serie A, great, not a problem, love it. Winning the Bundesliga, brilliant, put the medals in, you know, in my cupboard, whatever. But winning the Champions League cements your legacy. And I think that that has now, that is now so all-encompassing that, that 
just playing for Real Madrid in Barcelona has is is secondary to that in a way that I don't think it was maybe ten years ago. It's interesting that you men- mention in Europe in particular because I, I did set up the idea in this week before the Euros as we are what what value players would uh, apply to winning the Euros and to a player like Harry Kane as we've already discussed international achievements are of great value. They are also often. Uh, of great value if they're rare, not only because they only happen once every two years for major tournaments for European players uh, and others as well, but also because they're rare and that you cannot harvest them in the same way as you would if you were a Bayern Munich player or a Juventus player of years gone by or a PSG player. So what what value would you put on that for players and how much can you imagine them actually enjoying the prospect of winning the Euros? Because we are cynical because of what you just said about the Champions League. And that being the thing that most European players or players who play in Europe want to win. What kind of value do you think they will place over the course of the next five weeks on potentially winning the Euros? Is it the trophy? Is it a matter of national pride being the more intangible thing that they are able to celebrate over the actual silverware? Is it, uh, is it, is it more than that or is it less than that? Well, you're the one who's played for his country, Chinch. Surely it must vary from country to country how these players view success with their... National teams, you'd think the England players, if they were to, what it would mean to win the Euros to them would be extraordinary. But again, do they, in their heart of hearts, believe that that is going to happen, that they can make that happen? I think, there, again, there's more pressure on the French and the Germans and the Spanish to win the competition because of their history within the competitions. And I, I think culturally, they approach these competitions differently as well. I was covering the under 21 tournament recently as well and seeing how the Germans celebrated, the German young players obviously celebrated winning that. You can see what it what it genuinely means to, I know they're young players and success when you're young, when you're another five years down the line, you may, but I think you probably would. You'll see those young German players celebrating winning the under 21 championship, just as the, the, the senior German team will celebrate winning the Euros if they were to win it. So I, I and they have the luxury, I suppose, of playing with very successful clubs and earning money and winning titles. So they have they have the best of everything, really. But they're still, I'm sure that there will be, there's more pressure on them to win. But also, there's more opportunity. I think they'll have more desire and culture. They are built very differently. And that enables them to maybe be successful at international. And it would mean an awful lot to them. A massive amount to them, and I just that's and I think that does give them those countries the edge in competitions like this because they're coming from the lineage again of the success and the history. It brings pressure, but I think it, it brings out in them extra desire. And then if you're working that hard to achieve something, say, well, phew, at least I, we we didn't let the country down in this tournament. They, they again, yes, they've carried on that line of success, but also the the sense of achievement for themselves and for the group is enormous and again that breeds more success moving forward as well so i think it is a cultural thing and it is very different from country to country in teams of but you've got to be realistic as well and say england's chances of winning the euros from what we've seen you've got to say that plenty of other countries are, are ahead of us so again you've got to be realistic and not not saying you don't try of course you do and winning it but i think they would be surprised to win it happy but surprised other countries will think this is this is what we're aiming to do because of what we've achieved and what we know we are capable of with this squad I think the expectation and the pressure on England is ramped up ahead of these Euros as a consequence of so many of the games that they will play in taking place at Wembley effectively you know they're de facto host nation for the tournament 
But what Chinch says there is really interesting because it does feel as though our really bizarre attitude towards under-21s football, mm-hmm. England's approach during what feels like our lifetime towards the under-21s, is a handicap towards going on and winning a Euro or a World Cup. Because by not allowing the best players who qualify to play for the under-21s to play in that tournament, to gain that experience, that unity, that bonding exercise. And that winning mentality. And that winning mentality makes it all the more difficult to achieve that leap, that step to winning a major senior title. And that's a really interesting aspect, I think, of of the player mindset and, and what Rory was talking about with, with Harry Kane sort of single-mindedly having this aspiration that, that winning something with England will, will be what he is focusing in terms of his career pinnacle being. But it's such an incredible long shot compared to even breaking the goal-scoring record, never mind going and joining a, a club that is going to guarantee you trophies. But how much more attainable might that feel for Harry Kane to win a Euro or a World Cup with England if he'd had the experience of doing it with the under-21s? But there's the England under-20s who have at least Phil Foden in who have got that experience. I appreciate it a couple of years ago and and also not everybody in that team will become senior internationals. So there there was that blip which... And the under-17s won the yeah, World the Cup as well there, recently. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. And the, was it the under-19s won the Euros? Um, so they, there, was a, there was a good bunch there and, and that so that bucked a little bit of a trend in terms of achievement and it may well bear fruit in what you've just spoken about, Steve. But there is, there is also, I think, a growing sense and, and I don't know if this is talking in a way that suggests I'm watching too many romantic comedies at the moment, there is a growing sense that the the England squad of the moment are very different. And this is probably because of environments that set up actually within the squad that Gareth Southgate has obviously got a lot of praise for. Very different from the one that you experienced, Chinch, where there was a great amount of cynicism about playing for their country. They didn't give a, give a toss about success for their country because they were achieving with their clubs. And it also gave them a little bit of an emotional fallback because they were able to say, well, if it didn't work out, Yes, it was a shame, but we never really, we never yeah, really cared yeah, yeah. anyway. And that helps you to, to overcome uh, a defeat or a loss that you are experiencing, particularly if you, your name's plastered on front pages and back pages of newspapers as being failures. So you can understand that environment in which you played your part, but there is a sense they're not that it's slightly different now, that there is the potential not only for achievement, but also the potential for a group of players to actually believe that there is value to that trophy, value to the international success that has been starved of England for all this time. Yeah, I think with Gareth Southgate, obviously he was there. I know he missed the penalty, but he was there at England's most successful recent times in terms of, of the Euro. So he maybe knows. And then he was, I was, he was part of the squad that I was involved in. It wasn't me that actually caused all the problems with the England squad. It was already already broken before I arrived. I just made it worse. I broke yeah, both it feels, rather than just the one. It feels to me um, like you, you definitely contributed to the I, I contributed to the massively yeah. to the toxicity and the, the, the cliqueiness of the whole setup. But it, uh, yeah, so maybe he thought, well, and again, time has gone on. He's got a lot of younger players there who maybe think very differently than the players back then. And the football is a little bit different. These players are being, you know, reasonably successful at their clubs as well. It's not as if they're, not winning anything and then coming to play for England thinking this is our chance of winning something. They are, but it is the the mentality, I think the culture that Gareth is trying to change 
at the time that he's doing it, rather than these players have come through a system where the, the culture is what it is and we play football, ultimately, yes, to play attractive football at, at junior levels, but to win, to win at 17s, at 19s, at 20. What This is what all the other countries have watched, watching these, these European Championships, under-21 Championships. The difference, even watching, and it's no disrespect, watching Croatia and the quality that they have and the togetherness that they have and their desire to do whatever is necessary to win at that level it's something that you're going to need at every level, be it 17s or the senior team. So I'm just amazed, again, it's all about, it's the pipeline, it's providing players for the senior team. What, providing players that don't have the mentality on a national level to do whatever's necessary to win games? Because that's what ultimately you're providing. Players that fail in the group stages, don't ever get to the final knockout competition, never win the competition, while all the other nations around Europe are, are doing this and providing players for the senior team as well, but players who are used to, to winning. So maybe Gareth is trying to change this and he's working with players, younger players who are more malleable, and actually think very differently and do, I say in simplifying it, do care a lot more about their performances for England and actually being as successful as they can for England. It has the, the mindset does seem to have changed, whether that's, again, all down to Gareth Southgate or just the passage of time and just the way that modern players, young modern players think. And you can't exactly say that the, the players of France, Spain and Germany over the last 10, 15 years haven't had club success to also yeah. enjoy and they're able to, to compartmentalise to, to the degree that they're able to success uh, be successful in an international stage. The final point I wanted to make about this value of trophies discussion is about fans. What do fans think about the value of trophies? So, for example, if we're talking about the industrialisation of trophy collection, fans are playing their part in that is because... Manchester City fans want to win all four every year, or five, including the Community Shield. They want to win all that, and if they don't, they feel like they have fallen short, partly because of the expectations they have of their own team, but also partly because of the ability that they know their team has to actually win everything that they compete for. So the bar is almost raised to such an extent that the value of the Carabao Cup, for example, would normally be reduced to being so pitiful comparatively to the Champions League and the Premier League. And yet, because it contributes to a number mm. of trophies that they want to keep up and up and up. And Pep Guardiola mentions the Carabao Cup more than he mentions anything else, it would seem, when you, when you listen to him talking about them winning four in a row. Would, have fans played their part in doing this, in, in making sure that they're, actually the a value of a trophy which you wouldn't normally associate with being important is because they don't want anybody else to win them? It's a bit chicken and egg, isn't it? Like, did... Did the fans demand their clubs win trophies in industrial quantities or did the team start winning trophies in industrial quantities and that therefore raised the bar of what fans expect? The thing with fans is, and this is really hard to generalise, obviously, I, my, my, my perception... Can I, can I just say, is that an angle grinder he's got going in the background now? Seems it to sounds, be, yeah. Yeah, they, just the, the tone of the grinding sounds like a, an angle grinder. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to tell, does it? As I say, he has been doing it for months. For months. <laughs> The um, I, I United Utilities have just turned up on my street with a vehicle <laughs> the size of which would be appropriate for laying a new runway at the airport <laughs> and is certainly nowhere near appropriate for the very, very narrow Edwardian street that I reside on um, in my no-go area of South Manchester. <laughs> so I think there's a, yeah, there's a chicken and egg element to it that that fans maybe are responding to the fact that if you do win four trophies one year and you don't do it the next year, maybe that does feel like failure. I think that's natural. Or not failure, but it feels like a bit of a, you know, you've, 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 you've not achieved all that you, you could or that you, that you had. But also, I th my perception is that fans don't really enjoy trophies anymore, to a large extent, that, that, or that the, the enjoyment is extremely fleeting. And the best example of that that I can think of is, 
is with Liverpool this year, that Liverpool waited 30 years to win a title, won a title in in strange circumstances of the pandemic, but but basically quite spectacularly by obliterating the rest of the league. And then within six months, because they weren't top, were told that they were the worst champions of all time. Then went on to finish third, and apparently that made very little difference to whether they were the worst champions of all time. And that seemed to be some sort of attempt to like retroactively make their title mean less, which was a, which is a really new phenomenon that, that how well you've won the title only can only be judged in in how you perform the next season. Or that if you're one of two, three, four, five. Yeah, seven, like seven. if you don't win it, that winning it doesn't count if you don't win it again. That that definitely never used to happen. That idea that you had to win it multiple times to, for, for any of them to be legitimate. Unless you're and Leicester, th- of course. It's, unless you're Leicester, in which case it's yes. fine, yeah. Yeah, those teams who, it's almost a relief to win because fans of opposition clubs don't get to have a go at you for a period yeah, of exactly. time. Yeah, exactly. But the... It's yet another consequence, Rory, of this ridiculous conversation that people have in terms of generating a rivalry. Is Manchester City against Liverpool the greatest rivalry of of all time? Well, no, it's not even the most intense rivalry of the Premier League era or indeed the last decade. I feel like that needs to be on our next bingo squares, by the way. Yeah, exactly. uh, Referencing Manchester City against Liverpool being the greatest rivalry and then incredulously saying no. (laughs) Because it was a rivalry that lasted 18 months and maybe rekindled again. And, And what Rory's just described there about our Liverpool... Was Liverpool's title defence the worst of all time? No, it's not the worst in, in living memory. And it got an awful lot better towards not, the end of the To season. be honest, it's not the worst in the last five years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, but did, did that only arise because of what Roy Keane said? Or were people thinking that anyway? I think Keane probably tapped into a, a strand of... But Keane maybe tapped into a strand of thinking. But also I think what's interesting about it is, is the strand of thinking itself mm. that... That if, as Hugh says, if you don't win it, if you don't win multiple things, then then you're a failure. That if you don't, that, that what you did yesterday doesn't count. If today's not good enough, that that there is, you're not basically allowed to, to enjoy anything because basically what what you've achieved is written off as soon as you've achieved it. And I think that applies to to, to the media, to the pundit class. I think it applies to opposition fans who who probably understandably are seeking for any reason to to delegitimise whatever achievement their rivals have made. But I also think it applies to fans increasingly that that f- football's always been about tomorrow. This is one of the things that the Super League misunderstood that that you don't want to celebrate today. You want what you do today to mean that you can achieve something more tomorrow. So all the talk about oh fourth place trophy and success is qualifying for the Champions League should be about the FA Cup. It's it's. Qualifying for the Champions League isn't about qualifying for the Champions League. It's about being able to win it next year. That's why fans get excited about it. Because if you're in it, you can win it, not just to be in it. Thanks, Dale. It's all right, don't worry. One of the wisest men of the last 30 years. And so football's kind of about (laughs) tomorrow. But equally, it's that, that I think has now reached the kind of a point, a turning point where it's almost quite dangerous and a little bit damaging, this, this kind of Clough Ferguson mentality that as soon as you've won something, you forget about it. Why? Why on earth would you forget about winning the lead immediately and think about the next one? What a miserable way to live your life that you've achieved this thing that you've been dreaming of since you were a kid and you have to immediately forget about it. It's nonsense. It takes the joy out of all football. And it means that, you know, Man United can win 13 Premier League titles in, in 20 years and that's Fergie's great achievement. But I would, I would suggest that if if none of the players enjoyed it at the time, that's a bit of a shame, to be honest. If they were only allowed to, to enjoy it once they'd left or once they'd retired or once they'd won all 13, that's a bit of a pity because you should enjoy all of them 
maybe enjoy all of them for what they are individual as individual achievements rather than being like well we can't think about this being good we've got to go and do it again next year and if we don't do it again next year we failed and i think that that is all too high a bar we're asking too much of players and clubs in terms of consistent success but it's this goes back to the idea of having to make a decision whilst you're actually in your career about the potential for what that career. So, so the same argument, but about a player in that moment. So Sir Alex Ferguson would have said, would you rather win the Premier League again next season, but the penance is that you have to not enjoy this one? Pretty much anybody would have said, OK, yeah, because it's the promise of future success. And so they will do that because at the end of their career, insofar as that it will be longer, a longer part of their lives than their career... Ryan Giggs will say, oh, I won all those Premier League titles. I might not have, I might have been told to not enjoy them, but I won them and I'd rather have won them. So if you're making those decisions mid-career, you'll always do what I would imagine is best for the prospect of future success. And that's, and that's what drives maybe Harry Kane. That's what drive, drives those Manchester United players of the 90s and early 2000s. This is how, this is how these things work. You don't make a decision based on the retrospective at the end of your career and then reapply it. Oh, I would have done that. I would have done that. You, you have to make a decision based on where you are right now about the value that you place on the next thing. So is Harry Kane, like with, if you talk about the, the United success, you win a title, you put it to one side and you think about winning the title the next season. Is Harry Kane thinking, right, I put aside the 30 or whatever goals I've scored this season and it is all about next season. And then that's it. Then it's about the next. Is that what he has to do? Again, to keep track, to achieve what he wants to achieve. Maybe is that the mentality that you need? That you keep having to say, well, we don't rest on our laurels. We haven't done the job. We've got to keep going, whether it be a club, a team or an individual. Do you have to keep putting that behind you and saying, right, I've got, in essence, to prove myself again, to achieve in 10 years what I want to. I, I have to think like that. I have to be, whether that is being ultimately professional and starting again, whether you're successful, fail, you've got to start again and do it better. To, to keep going, to keep moving forward. Once you think I've done it and I don't, I just need to carry on doing it. Is that when the success or the, the possibility of achieving and breaking all these great records stops? So he has to maybe think like United did and put last season to one side and go hell for leather the next season. It is all about the next season, the next game. Mm. It depends. Yeah, on that's probably what, right. What, yeah, it depends on the, the the relative value of what he says. If if he wants to, so just it's not not enjoying miles. the thirty. Go- he probably can't. If you said, can you remember twenty of those thirty? Go- he probably can't because again, he's just thinking about the next game, the next goal, and moving forward and looking forward. But the one thing I say about the, the value of everything, it's really interesting. I think once for these players, it's they've got to be happy with themselves as well because when their career is finished, I guarantee you, whether it's it's me or Alan Shearer or Harry Kane, at the end of your career, you've got to. That you've, you've had your career, you've made your decisions, whatever's happened's happened, whatever you've tried to manipulate and try to improve on, the decisions you make in terms of clubs and, 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 and whether you go for money or for trophies or everything else, you have to live with yourself ultimately. And you will be, okay, certain players might have statues and these goal-scoring records, I think, again, can keep you in the spotlight, like Jimmy Greaves, for many, many decades to come. But most players, even really successful ones, you can win everything, World Cups, and it's amazing how quickly you are forgotten because the modern fan or is watching the current team and is thinking about this team and not, yes, we enjoyed that in the past, but players are forgotten. So you've got to be happy ultimately with yourselves. And it maybe is slightly difficult to make those decisions. It is so because you, and again, you don't know because it's all in the future. And when you're sat alone thinking about the career that you've had, you ultimately have to be happy with it. You know, I feel absolutely terrible about that career I had, but there's other things that give me joy in life. But Harry Kane, again, he might be sat there, England's, greatest goal scorer, Tottenham's greatest goal scorer, he may have a statue or not, 
And he might think, you know what, that is what I wanted to achieve. So what, however people view me five years after I retire, I'm still very happy with the decisions I made and, and what, what I achieved or didn't achieve. Chinch, would you say that, that you, all of your career was worth it because it all led to the point where you did this podcast? Um, I was maybe, if I'd had a choice, maybe five years into my career and I knew that I could avoid meeting you all and doing this podcast. <laughs> it's, just the, it's just the listeners I would really miss. Um, I, That's I could, some career motivation you missed out on there, It is. Chinch. If I'd have had Mina Raiola saying, Christ, you need to move to Dortmund because if you don't, you could end up doing a podcast with three bellends. <laughs> I'd say, get me that move. Get me that move now, Mina, my old mate. It's time for Nevermind, Jack and Rory, what a soccer story. This is Andy Tells the Tale from his play on broadcasting days with all that behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. He's just told it. No, I, well, yes, that, that is <laughs> what, yeah. It's going to Dortmund, but... This is from 1993, and it's it's always a worry when you meet your heroes. Have you ever just did, I'm a bit of a sidebar here? Have you ever met you know true heroes in your life that you grew up? Have you have you met Timothy Dalton? Clearly for you, Hugh. Have you, <laughs> Rory? Have you met any of your heroes, Steve? I've never met no? Juan Roman Riquelme or Rui Costa. Okay. So no. Okay. Steve, anyone? Yeah, I, yeah I met Matt Letizia, a, a footballer for whom I had great admiration. Have I have slightly call... less admiration did, for now. Did he tell you not to get a vaccine? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I wouldn't have yeah, called yeah, him. He had some interesting thoughts on climate change. Yeah, him palming you off in the face is not meeting him, Steve. But anyway, um, Kenny Sansom, the England oh, yeah. left-back legend, Kenny Sampson. 86 England caps, just one goal. But let's let's focus on the 86 caps. He was growing up as a, a burgeoning but very talented young left-back. Kenny Sampson was the, was the guy, wasn't he? Very small guy, but he was the guy. He was the left back that we all looked up to. I don't know whether you remember, he actually came to Everton. He only played seven games, but he, he came to Everton because, in my mind, it was because I was injured. I had one of my numerous injuries. Could have been knee, could have been Achilles, could have been back, could have been brain. I had an injury and they needed someone to, to fill my slot. Not quite as well. So an ageing Sansom was was the man designated just to, to fill the void until I was fit again. But he was, you know, when I heard that Kenny was coming, it was it was very exciting, but not for the reason that you maybe think. He was one of my heroes, but it was well known within football that Kenny Sansom did the very best Norman Wisdom impression out there. So I was very, very excited about meeting Kenny. Not this just is to... a real, this is a real story for the kids. It is. It is. There's a lot of a bit of googling, and you'll it's you'll a, find yeah. out what I'm talking about. The but furious he, uh, research going on. And I thought, you know, for a young left back, Kenny Sanson comes along, and you think, you know, watching him on the training field, watching him prepare. You know, what did he do to get to the levels to get 86 England caps? If I got oh six or more, I'd be a happy, happy man. <laughs> and it, it wasn't that. It was it was how long is it going to take? And it was the talk of the Everton dressing room. How long is it going to take before he does his Norman Wisdom impression? And just how good is it going to be? And the answer to the first question is not very long, a matter of hours <laughs> after stepping into the dressing room. Maybe he felt obliged to do it. Uh, but I must say, I was, I was slightly disappointed in it. Maybe, again, you ramp things up, you meet your heroes, you hear about this incredible talent that they have, not on the pitch, but in terms of putting a flat cap on and doing a Norman Wisdom impression. But it, it, it was, a dis I laughed along. Because you, you have to do when people do things like this, because you're that's what's expected of you. But it was, it was disappointing. It was disappointing. But I, I think I did learn something about how to be 
a left back moving forward, and that is never to do impressions of comedians. It's funny. So I it? avoid. I avoided. I actively, with with help of Mina Rayola, I avoided that <laughs> during my career. It is funny that you hear quite a lot of people. I remember Charlie Adam doing it, complaining about how in dressing rooms now everyone's on their phone. Like the yeah. French lads are talking to the French lads, and the Spanish lads are talking to the Spanish lads, and there's no camaraderie. But you compare it to where we've come from, which was Kenny Sansom doing a disappointing impression of a long forgotten comedian, and you think maybe it's good that they invented the phone. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I, I would love to, you know, go into the Man City dressing room and hear. Ilkay Gundogan's take on, on Ronnie Corbett. On Ronnie Corbett, <laughs> or, or who's who's a who's a popular modern comedian in the UK? Who's the who's the most? Jim Davidson, Freddie Starr. No, no, yeah. no. Better than that. Better than that. I mean, I think I think we'd we'd all appreciate Gabriel Michael McIntyre. Gabriel Jesus does Michael McIntyre. That would be that would be fantastic. Go down a storm. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, Rory and Andy and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Uh, can I just say to yeah, Norman Wisdom, Mr. Grimsdale, that was his cap. Just go on, just, just Google it and you'll, you'll see what I'm saying. Then maybe, maybe Sansom will be on there doing his Norman Wisdom impression. Who wasn't knows? He, wasn't he really popular in, in Albania? Sansom. Norman Wisdom in Albania. The first time that England played Albania, you know, yep. after loads of years. Didn't Norman Wisdom go to that game and appear at half-time or something like that? I think brutal Albanian dictator Enver Hodja liked Norman Wisdom. Therefore, Norman Wisdom became the only acceptable face of the capitalist Satan in communist and isolationist <laughs> Albania. And therefore he is... But there's, there's loads of stuff like that in Eastern Europe. So Only Fools and Horses, massively popular in Serbia. Like, enormously, genuinely still incredibly popular in Serbia, despite being massively overrated. Well, because it was Nemanja Vidic liked it, so everybody had to like it. Yeah. But I think Vidic came to England partly because he thought it was all, all going to be Del Boy and Rodney. Because <laughs> there was going to be chandeliers <laughs> falling from roofs all over the... the... You, you couldn't lean on a pub bar. It was yeah, impossible. you never know if it would disappear. The, the, um, the, my favourite genre of chinch story is the one that makes it sound like it was it just offering sort of little insight into how bleak Britain was <laughs> up until about 1997. I have that talent, don't I? Yeah. I really do have that talent. Just like we, we were all, we were all, all these, you know, you've got Dave Watson, you've got Southall, you've got all these legends of the game, you've got Hinchliffe, you've got Rideout, and they're all just waiting for, for, for some fella to do an impression of Norman Wisdom. Anders Limpar hadn't a clue what no. was going on. Anders Limpar would be, he'd, he'd, you know, if you'd done an impression of Bjorn from ABBA, Anders Limpar would have been all over it.